Welcome to Claritin Conversation. My name is Katie Esbester, and my guest today is Tim Francis. Tim is an experienced actor, appearing in numerous theater shows, notably working at the Regent's Park's Olivier-nominated rendition of Sound of Music, and he's currently performing in the Agatha Christie classic, Witness for the Prosecution, in the West End. I have tickets to go see it at the end of September, which I'm looking forward to. Tim also has a strong presence in the world of TV, as he is an accomplished actor for the BBC, with over 20 credits for them. Memorably, Tim has showcased his range as an actor through his comedy, demonstrated through BBC's Gangster Granny, and his ability for drama in The Barking Murders. Tim has been praised by critics countless times, with his performances being described as the strength of the production. Welcome to Claret and Conversation, Tim. Thank you very much. So I have to confess that um, we did more than one try for that introduction because I was reading my cue cards for you and I find it really, really difficult to sound natural and relaxed and conversational when I'm reading pre-prepared lines. How do you do it, Tim? Well, now you say it, when you say it like that, I'm not sure. It is, <laughs> it is really hard to do. Um, I do audiobooks. So you are rather where you're, where you're used to learning lines and yes. working with the work that you do on lines that are in your head rather than on a piece of paper. That's that's what we do. But when you're reading it, it's very hard. That's a different it, skill. Is that what you're saying? I think it is. It, to make it um, lively and vivid and spontaneous and curious and interesting and all of those things, when actually you're reading once upon a time, there was a little girl called Goldilocks, comma, who had three, and mm, it's, yes. it, that's a, not a very good example, but it is... No, I think it's a fine example, because it, it, it sounds very pedestrian. Well, it's, I mean, it, it is easy to make those things rather pedestrian, I think, and the skill and the, and the fun is in the moment that it takes from the page into your brain to translate it into something that is exciting or um, enticing, mm-hmm. seductive, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, um, and and when you memorize lines for theatre, is that different? Is that a different process? It's a different process because you have time to work on it and play and write to fail and time to remember as well. Because mm-hmm. I mean, it does take. It's not like learning a poem for school the next day when you recite. Mm-hmm. It's a process of your brain taking the lines so that they are natural, that they come from somewhere, that they are spontaneous that they are second nature mm-hmm. rather than you don't remember lines on stage and you don't the, no you, they they're there oh. i think you can always tell if someone is remembering a line mm-hmm. one well, of the one of the things about rehearsal is 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 that lines become second nature because they're there for a reason because their uh, recitation is a feat of memory playing hamlet is a is a feat of rehearsal Oh, I see. It's practice, practice, practice. It's it's practice and it's variety. It's changing. It's it's trying things, failing things, and at the same people. There's a lovely piece. Uh, I think it's Peter O'Toole talking about learning lines, and he says, "I don't learn lines. I study lines." Interesting. Which is a difference. great, great word. Yeah. When uh, and it's exactly what you do because I, especially with bigger parts, I like to learn before rehearsal mm-hmm. starts because it makes rehearsal so much easier and so much more fun if you're not got a great big piece of pile of A4 in your hand. So. In order not to recite lines, as you work on them, on learning them, you're studying them at the same time. I see. So when I'm learning lines, I'm writing pencil notes all over the script. Yes, of course. That doesn't surprise me, actually, 
uh, if I can just move slightly sideways to my profession as an editor, I think most people think that what I do is read books for a living. And I don't, <laughs> I, I don't read books. I, I edit. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a studying. Well, you I read s- in a different way. Don't yes. You? I study and I make notes. I've always got, you know, the document up in front of me and then a document open as well, generally on a different computer. Uh, where I make notes about what I'm reading, yeah. as well as track changes, as well as commentary, just to understand, just to, just to know what I'm reading. Absolutely. That's, it, it's, very, it's very similar. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's something, I don't understand that. Or sometimes it's, there's a better way of saying that. Mm-hmm. But usually it's, it's figuring out the person you're playing, getting little clues, um, inferences from the script that you can then build and snowball with. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the the notes you make at that period are when you start rehearsal you rub them out because they're wrong mm-hmm. but they've given you a clue and they've given you an in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because you've got all that sort of the six sevenths of the iceberg below the line that's in your in your memory the line comes from a natural place rather than a remembered place mm-hmm. does that make sense absolutely it does I'm just going to tell you a story I heard, a um, story I know. It happened to me. I bought tickets to go see Jeremy Irons in a West End production where he was, uh, it was some Eastern European classic that I'd never heard of before. And I kid you not, he didn't know half his lines. And they kept being shouted to him from the, from the wings. And it was really quite extraordinary because I was in the back and Jeremy Irons is up on stage doing his, doing his thing and there'd be this pause and then you'd hear from the wings... So I said to her I wouldn't go. And then Jeremy would say, so I said to her I wouldn't go. And then the other actor would respond. And then there'd be a pause. And he'd hear from the wings. And I said to her, I don't care what you say to me. I'm not going. And then Jeremy Irons would say, I don't care what you say to me. I'm not going. Right. We were all at Twitter. Like, How you know, much the did whole... you pay for the ticket? <laughs> like, well, I was, as usual, in the very back row, you know, I need something needs almost binoculars for. But it was really quite, quite a, I was quite taken back. And I thought, surely you put a little bit of work into this, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, uh, on the other I mean, hand. Sometimes, I mean, whether you're, uh, someone like Jeremy wouldn't, wouldn't be cast late. Yeah. Sometimes if you are, some, you know, in you're in advance. you've only yeah. had a week to learn it, then maybe. But I have to say in his defence, I did a show at the National Theatre with Jeremy and he did know his lines for that. Did he? So, OK, yeah. so maybe he was had the flu with the previous two weeks Could or be. something. Let's say, we, let's yeah. say Jeremy had or the you, flu. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And what yes. was it like working with him? Oh, enormous fun. He's very naughty. Well, you, I know. I, yeah. I watched him yeah. perform yeah. without <laughs> having learned his lines. <laughs> in what sense was he naughty? Oh, he, he's, very, he's a twinkler. A twinkler. Yeah. Now that's a an English expression I'm not familiar with. He would oh, talking out of turn. Uh, he twinks out of he turn. Would, he would. There, we did the play about Macmillan with him. Never so good by Howard Brenton. He played Macmillan, and he would in big crowded Downing Street scenes, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be. He was wonderful in the mm-hmm. part, but if he turned upstage and we were facing downstage, he would giggle or smile or. Wink at you. Wink, or, yeah, he's yeah. a twinkler. He twinkles. Okay, yeah. I see. So that makes him a pleasure to work with. He was a lot of fun, yeah. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Um, so just to move off the topic of Jeremy Irons and get back to you, you're a London boy. I like, thank you for the comparison there. <laughs> Jeremy's got an Oscar. I haven't done that one yet. Not quite yet. Give no. yourself time. Yeah. Um, so where were you born in London? I was born in Highbury. Okay. And grew up in Berkshire and Newbury. Oh. Home of the watermill, which of course... Sol's law says I've never actually worked where, worked, worked at yet. Okay, so well that's maybe listen, a good if thing. You're, if you're listening, Watermill Theatre, it's about time. <laughs> well, I hope that they do listen to Thank us. 
and what was how old you when you started your first role, your first acting role? Oh, uh, primary school. Oh, really? I remember my dad was very proud. I was. We did. You're thinking about what an extraordinary school it was, John Rankin School, in Newbury, and we did uh, medieval mummers plays, guild plays. Wow. And we did. Is it St George and the Turkish Knight? I think. Would have been, you know, I don't know, golly, 14th century, 15th century, mama's play. Good heavens. And I played the Turkish Knight. I would have been, golly, six, seven, eight. And I remember my dad very cleverly and very proudly made me a cardboard cutlass. Mm. He cut, he shaped the cardboard, a proper um, hilt on the end, and he covered it with silver foil. So I was a very sparkly Turkish Knight. And he he probably was more proud of that moment in my acting career than I was, but he was so proud of his cutlass. So that prob- that's probably the first. I don't remember anything about it except Dad's DIY skills. Mm-hmm. After that... It sounds like an extraordinary primary school, though. Well, certainly, to do, I mean, this would have been mid-late 60s. So, yeah, a school doing a mummer's play like that with... with I, I really don't know, I was seven years old, maybe. I think that's absolutely extraordinary. It's wonderful. That's it? fantastic. And Although I have to a, say, my children's here in Clapham, my kids went to Clapham Manor Primary School, and they also had a super experience doing plays there. I think it's one of the things the English do exceptionally well and don't even know about it, that they put these complicated plays on, uh, which require the entire year and all the staff have oh, to yeah, get yeah, involved yeah. in some major undertaking. Both my primary and my grammar school had, were into that, and they, they had a passion for that. Fantastic. Many schools don't simply because um, they're not allowed to, because drama has been so sidelined or completely excised in these schools. It's it's a it's criminal, really, because it's the, a subject that can inform growing minds better than any. I think. Yes, of course. As the headmaster of the primary school, uh, whose name was Brian Hazel, and he said to me, "Kids, remember them primary school." This is what they remember the, the, the kitchen the, the Christmas panto and their role in the Christmas panto. They remember the end of school play and their role in the end of the year their role in that. Um, they you know, they, they don't remember all the they don't even remember the school trips to the British Museum and things like that, but they remember the plays. Yeah. I mean I, yes, I remember the plays. I remember the school orchestra. We had the I mean the same Victor Roussel, his name was. Yeah. Um, Extraordinary man, one of the men that loom loom large, really. Uh, it, for me, I mean, an inspiration and a joy of a man. And it was, he conducted the school orchestra. I played violin in the school orchestra and plays and reciting comedy poet, comic poetry and things like that. Was, I, I, looking back, I think I was always performer, always front and center, wanting wanting to perform something. Well, that's and finding finding joy in it. Good. Without knowing what that actually meant, I think. So what does it mean? Oh, golly, that's a very deep question. Oh, sorry. No, <laughs> you don't have to answer it, Tim. This I is don't not... think I'm even going to begin to give you a good answer to that. You know, a profound, uh, you know, a poetic, encapsulating answer to that. It's, it's so... Golly. It's, every, it's everything. It's... it's to perform and to be listened to and to, especially, I think, to make someone laugh or to, to make a, a, a collection of people laugh is, mm-hmm. a, is an extraordinary thing. Well, if, if to put it in a more philosophical framework, mm-hmm. 
The 20th century philosopher Hannah Arendt, or pronounce, you might pronounce her name Arendt, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce her name. Uh, she wrote Eichmann in Jerusalem and The Banality of Evil and things like yes, that. And she, like most people who survived World War II, she was a Jew who survived World War II. Uh, she was obsessed with how the German public democratically elected Hitler and engaged mm. in you know, the atrocities. And she said, really, if you want to have democracy, you have to have a people who are prepared to both perform and listen. It is both, a, you have to be both a participant and the audience when you are, if you want to have an, a strong uh, democracy. And she claims, I'm no classicist, that, the, uh, that Aristotle and the classicists, the, 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 the ancient Greeks, understood this concept well and taught rhetoric in school and oh, yeah. appreciated theatre as an integral part of a healthy... It was a, it was a fundamental part of, certainly in Greece, a fundamental part of what it, what it was to be a society. Yeah. Was, was theatre. It was, yeah. it was... And she would say we have um, sidelined it. We have think it's merely entertainment and, that, uh, and we do not understand that the public realm requires people to both participate, perform, perform in it, and as well be uh, listeners to it and respond to what has been performed. It's a in fundamental front of you. need. I think storytelling is the oldest form of communication there is. It's, it's, people have a need, fundamental atavistic need to tell stories, and they have the same need to hear stories. To hear stories. No, I agree. Going with back to Homer and beyond, I think. You'll remember better than me, there's the Roman who said the people need bread, but they also need circuses. Yes. <laughs> now, circuses could, could involve just, oh, let me go and see someone get stabbed. Yes. Or, or netted and tridented or something. But yes. it could also mean uh, improved and enlightened and changed. Have a, have a different part of their by soul. By Sophocles or whoever it might be you're watching. Yeah. I can remember listening to a Cuban um, dissident activist talk about the failures of the Cuban Revolution. And he participated in the Cuban Revolution, and he said, "What we, what we, thought everybody wanted was just bread, and what it turned out they also needed was beauty." Mm. Of course, he was Cuban. He spoke much more poetically than I am speaking. I'm doing him a, a grave disservice, but I, I, it stuck in my mind that we have these two fundamental needs: one to actually physically survive, and the other one to feed, feed our soul. You know, the bread and the beauty of life. Mm. Which, you know, the Romans had bread and circuses. They put it a little less generously, I think. <laughs> well, I think uh, certainly the way I interpret that, that phrase is that circus covers, it means entertainment of, of from low to high. Yes, I certainly hope so. But let's get back to you, Tim. Um, when, did you, when did you get your first, your first gig out in, outside the school? As a pro? Yeah. It was in 1984. Uh-huh. I left university... I did a drama degree, uh-huh. which made me made my decision to be an actor. I went there wanting to be a director, and then discovered just how woefully bad I was at it. Ouch! Oh God, yes. Uh, I did two things at university, which taught me a very helpful lesson. Oh yes. What? So one was that the you were. The shall, shall stick to his last in this respect. I think. I beg your pardon. I'm going to start. I am an actor, and I don't want to be anything else. Okay. It, it's always sometimes good to have doors close on you. Absolutely right. I tell that to my own children when they kind of crash and burn. I say, well, 
you know, the silver line in the crowd is you're not going to try to walk down a road that doesn't suit you now. I'm a great believer in that. I mean, I think the, the lesson of an acting career is learning what not to do. Mm-hmm. Can you, you expand on that? I, I mean, you're in one of the most difficult careers that there are in the creative arts. You know, I, I know very few actors who can live off their acting, and you've managed it, which is quite impressive. Oh, yes, praise be. I'm touching yeah, wood. Yeah, knock speak. on wood. Uh, but it's, it took me a while. Yeah. Uh, I was easily 15 years kicking about, struggling, before I dared use the word career about my life. And when you say that, acting teaches you what you can and cannot do, what do you mean by that? You learn... I, I, I think it's a process of reduction. Um, Ralph Richardson was asked, who's a hero of mine? He was asked how he coped with long runs of plays, and he said, every week I try and do less. <laughs> and it's about, it's about taking away. It's a, it's a process of reduction. It's about taking the acting out of the acting, about not performing, about not showing the story you're telling, not showing the emotion that you want to convey, not, but just... Being it. Being it, existing it, and, let, and and also don't answer all the questions. That's one of the reasons there's an audience there. You make them figure let it out. Let them out. And, and if, if, if there's 50 people in the audience and they come up with 50 different answers, that's okay because they're all right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's about taking, you know, sawing the air and what's the Shakespeare speech? Um, You've got me The there. Hamlet speech. To be or not to be? The, to the <laughs> players when he says... Um, Oh Lord, I have to. I have to. We'll, we have to edit. This is an edit point. We'll go. It is an edit point. We'll go and find, find the Hamlet speech and then, okay. and then stick, it okay, in, well, stick it in here. Yeah, we're going to take a break for an ad, and then we're going to come back with the Hamlet speech. Everything written needs an editor. As Stephen King once said, "To write is human. To edit is divine." It could be a memoir you wrote about growing up, or a copy for business statements, or a racing page turner that you want to present to agents. For highly experienced and professional editing at a reasonable price, contact Clapham Publishing. www.clapphampublishing.com for all your writing needs. Welcome back to Clarence Conversation. I'm talking with Tim Francis, and this is turning into a bit of a masterclass on how to be an actor. And Tim has recalled Shakespeare's famous lines from Hamlet when Hamlet has given instructions to the players who have come to um, uncover their murderer, or the murder of his father. Take it away, Tim. This is, I, I'm rather ashamed I didn't know this. This should be on... Oh, on the tongue sakes. of every actor who, who tries to do this. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as leave the town crier spoke my lines. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus, but use all gently. For in the very torrent, tempest, and, as I may say, whirlwind of passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. This is glorious stuff. Isn't it? It offends me to the soul to hear a robustious, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings, who for the most part are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. I would have, I would have such a fellow whipped for er doing termagant, out Herod's Herod's. Pray you avoid it. That's everything you need to know. That's that's three years of drama school right there. <laughs> there we go. We just saved you a whole bunch of tu- tuition. Yeah. All you all you youngsters who are listening to this, there the, we go. This is, I mean, I know I did it when I was young, tearing a passion to tatters. We want to show our acting. That we care. We, no, we want to show our acting. It's not yeah. the same. It's Sorry. a different thing. And the less you show, the more you people come to the front of their seat. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing more 
compelling than somebody crying is somebody not trying not to cry. If you're playing a drunk, you're trying you're playing someone who's trying to appear sober. Yes. It's so I mean that's tear a passion to tatters. That's it somewhat reminds me of William Shatner, kind of saying, you know, the William Shatner way of acting. He adores tearing passion. To yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 Shakespeare saying to people, please don't be like William Shatner. Like it, he could just pull it off on yeah. Star Trek, and that was like, but don't 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 pull a William Shatner on us here, okay? <laughs> if you if you come from underneath something, just it's a pearl, and just go, I'm going to give you a pearl now, mm-hmm. rather than say. Look at the pearl I've got. Look at the pearl. <laughs> yeah, it's, yes, <laughs> it's it's more compelling. It's more interesting. Indeed. And so I, that that for me has been the the lesson of my three or four decades doing this is is how to tell a story without acting. Capital A. I think my fa- is, I love these quotes from various people. I mean, there's a Gene Kelly. These, this is all apposite. I think there's a Gene Qu- Kelly quote to dancers: If you can see a dancer working, they're not working hard enough. That's a good one. I'm going to say, don't, don't let them see you sweat. Yeah. Or uh, my favourite one is James Cagney, who said, um, find your mark, look the other fella square in the eye and tell the truth. Oh, that's also good. Which is glorious. I think there's um, a power in the... When it becomes a part of you, what you're talking about, you know, there's a, an authenticity to it. And there's a power in the authenticity. Authenticity is a really good word mm-hmm. because it, 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 car- it carries meaning of honesty and honour and truthfulness but okay let me let me now make it a little bit difficult for yeah, you here here on, we man. go I'm, I'm going to be play a little bit the devil's advocate there was a, um, a famous story of dustin hoffman when he was in marathon man and in marathon man he was kind of tortured or something else like that and to prepare himself for the scene so he could understand what it felt like he had done to himself all sorts of painful and unpleasant things and apparently laurence olivier said when he heard about this Dustin Hoffman should try acting. Well, he said, yes, it's a true story. It's, it's yeah. William Goldman tells, tells, who was the screenwriter of that, tells yeah. it in his book. But Hoffman had been up, he'd been running miles, he stayed up all night, didn't sleep. And Olivier said to him uh, on, on set the next day, my dear boy, why don't you just act? Yes. And, <laughs> and he kind of, I have some sympathy with Laurence Olivier. Well, I, mean, I this do is, too. This is, what you, this is what you're being paid to do. This is why you're being paid and I'm not. It's because you is, can act and I can't. It's, there are so many different ways of getting to what I'm talking about. I don't by any means think there's a single way, and I don't use a single way of getting there. It depends on the people you're working with, the director you're working with, the writer you're working with. So I think what we're all aiming for is round about the same thing the roads we take to get there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, especially on film, because you're, you're only going to get a couple of goes at it, unless, unless you know, you're working with someone like Kubrick and you get 85 takes on everything, but you need a different device to get you there. So if sleeplessness and torturing yourself or some, uh, in some respect is helpful, but what you do with it is then still to tell the truth, find your mark, look the other fellow square in the eye and tell the truth, then I think that's absolutely grand. I mean, Olivier was very much a, not of that school, mm-hmm. but they are. And you watch Marathon Man, and they are both wonderful in it. Mm-hmm. So how you get there is, it's to a certain you. extent, is is your business. Yes, I, I, and I think that's also true for all the creative arts. I don't think that's just acting. There's more oh, than yeah. more than one way to write a novel, you know. And this one of my, you know, irritants is when I get these very very good students who have 
gotten an undergraduate degree in English and then a master's degree in creative writing and then a PhD in, 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 in novels. And they come to me with their school their school project they've gotten a star on there and I and I and it it doesn't feel at all right but they've gone they've they've gone through all the motions they've gone through all the right steps tick the boxes yeah and it's very hard to say but there's nothing here be, do, do this differently this has not served you well going through schools and getting a PhD in creative writing because it, you've ended up being a, an excellent student and a mediocre writer well, yes, maybe, maybe there's something in that that. And yet, Ian McEwan went to school. You know, there's all there's that long. Um, Tracy Chevalier went to school. You know, it's not as if there aren't writers yeah. who went to to writing college and uh, got writing degrees. But both you of know. them went there with embryonic, singular voice. I, I imagine. I, I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't know. I've, I've not interviewed either one of them, so I wouldn't know. But I do know that there's actually a fairly long roster of of successful alumni who have been through the Iowa Writers' Workshops and various other um, writing courses. So for some people it works, and for some it doesn't. Well, I think you can be... You can teach, teach schools of acting from Brecht to Stanislavski to Strasbourg, but the person has to have their own charisma, their own voice, their own... I mean, a huge part of something you cannot get away with is that you are get away from is that you are you. Yes. And that's not exactly finite, but it is something you're stuck with. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you you have to negotiate with it, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and you can't not use yourself because you're, that's your tool. Mm-hmm. You, you add script and, I don't like the word, but character, but you're adding it to this thing that you, that you are because you have to. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of, the, one of the other things that I think actors learn, and it's a hard lesson to learn, I think, is what they're right for. Yes. Um, it's our equivalent, I suppose, of coming from being taught, and you you know your Stanislavski, you know your actions, your intentions, your given circumstances, all these all these buzzwords that we're taught. You know your lab and working actions. You know what, what, all these little techniques that you are taught in school. But if I turned up and said, "Right, I'm here for Romeo," now I can I can recite the lines. I can make the poetry sound wonderful. Yes, but you're a few but months past I fourteen. Ro- I ain't a Romeo, and I never was a Romeo. When I was the right age, I wasn't a Romeo. Yeah. So, you know, suck it up. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're hard lessons to learn. Learning our own limitations is always a hard lesson. Yes, because limitations are ultimately, um, when you embrace them, they're liberating. They're not trivial. We're, we've got such a philosophical discussion ah. going on here. It's, it's, it's unusual. Uh, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I hope everybody else is too. Uh, Tim, let's just briefly return the conversation away from the abstract. Oh, golly, right, yeah. And back to you. You. I think. I, I, I think, think I'm more comfortable in the abstract. Yes, I'm thinking that too. You always think of an, an actor as being someone who's got a kind of enough about me. Let's talk about me some more. But you are disproving that stereotype. No, I'm not a fan of that. I think I like the actors who do their talking on stage or on on camera. Yeah, apparently you're one of them, and which is a you know a wonderful discovery to make. Uh, but nonetheless, I want to ask you, right. and I ask this of all my guests, um, what is the, if there is one, um, a work that you, that most inspired you to go along this extremely difficult career that you've chosen of being an actor? Is there any one standout experience or work of art that you've seen that m- kind of made your world shift on its axis? 
I think it's largely a process of finding out how thrilling these things can be. I do remember there was one thing. I grew up in a very um, devout Church of England household and who were also quite religious about what time children should go to bed. And I, I'm guessing I was eight, nine, ten, maybe ten years old, I don't know, but pre-secondary school. Mm-hmm. And sometime mid-evening, BBC Two, on came the Pasolini movie of the, of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. As a ten-year-old re- brought up in the church, this... I sort of... Well, I was interested. Yes, of course. Um, and because it was the Gospel according to St. Matthew, Mum and Dad were quite pleased that I was interested. They didn't realise that Pasolini was a raving Marxist and this was a really... This was a, a heavily <laughs> dogmatic and, and diatribe uh-huh. and political movie. But I refused, point blank, to go to bed. I mean, not to the point of kicking and screaming because it was, after all, a film about the Gospel, so Mum and Dad were rather torn. Yes. And I watched it and I've never forgotten it. And it was... It's such a powerful piece, and it's so explosive and, and passionate. So that's that probably is it, actually. Uh, and I did. I, st- I was allowed to stay and watch the whole thing, and I never, ever forgot it. And the DVD is on my shelf now. Oh, well, um, I've never seen the movie, I have it's to a, confess. It's a fabulous, fabulous movie, and it's, it's mostly amateur actors. And I, the one bit I do remember is the Sermon on the Mount, which is just a close-up of this wonderful rugged, bearded, dark Italian actor just fulminating into the camera. And, it, and it, it, the Sermon on the Mount becomes a treatise for the most um, ideal and, and what purest form of socialism, because mm-hmm. that's what Pasolini was. Well, the, the kind of the socialist, Christian socialist is a strong We could do with movement. that speech being done again now. But, well, yes, um, yes. <laughs> So that's probably, other than that, I think it was, yeah, concerts and performances at school and discovering what, making people laugh and and glandular fever. Glandular fever? Glandular fever plays a huge role in my life. All the way through my, well, for a year of my sixth form, I had glandular fever. So not an ounce of work got done, which meant any ambitions that I or others had for an academic career were shot out of the water rather and, and, and praise be for it. And I ended up doing a drama degree as a sort of halfway house. And, and thank, yeah, thank heavens for it. it it's interesting that it's, um, these, dark, these dark times actually turn out to be hidden blessings, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the smallest and weirdness of, is the, the butterfly in the forest. It's, it yes. change yeah. the course of your life, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and which, of, of all your many... Um, contributions to acting. Is there anything you think was probably your greatest gift to the the theatre? Oh Lord! I, um, anything you're particularly the proud one, of? I wouldn't. I wouldn't couch it in those terms, and I don't think it's. I wouldn't want to give you an answer to that. Really, you're the, being the, very the, the one that the one that matters to me most uh, was an Inspector Calls, which I did for 15 months around 2000. And, and that's it, now on the uh, GCSE curriculum, yeah, was, so everybody yeah. knows that, like, we all know now, like, the back of our hands, it's whether we want Stephen, or not. Stephen Daldry production with the Dolls House. And, ah. and I did two versions of that, one on tour and then, then in the West End. 
and that's the the show that where I learnt seriously how to be how to do what I want to do. That's the show that taught me the most. Oh, that's fantastic. And, I, and are you still in contact with Stephen Daldry? Alas, not. No. No. Do uh, you have any stories about Stephen Daldry? We, we, we didn't work with him very much. We worked with a, um, his associate called uh, Julian Webber. So we saw Stephen maybe a half dozen times, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he was, he was away. He might have been doing the hours at that time, I think. Okay. Well, that was the show... Apart from putting my foot into air one time, walking around the doll's house, because I thought I was familiar, I was so familiar in, with it after months mm-hmm. playing on it, and I walked around it, and when the doors were open, so you're basically just on a floor yeah. that is 10 feet up in the air, and I felt my foot touch nothing. Uh-oh. And I thought, okay, it's been a nice <laughs> life. And below you is our sort of bricks and girders just sticking up out of the floor, so you would break several bones if you fell on those. Oh, ow. But, um, so that was an interesting moment. What, what happened? You pulled yourself back into Well, a... you just sort of, your balance takes over and you just manage to tip the other way. But that was a fun moment. Any other fun moments you can recall? The other one was, oh, there's a, a moment, I played Gerald. And there's the famous moment, if, you've, if anyone's seen the show, where the, the crisis moment, the doll's house tips and the whole of the, the furniture, the, the crockery, everything just pours out and breaks onto the floor. And this wonderful hydraulic lifts the doll's house to an angle of about... 30, 40 degrees, and then there's just chaos on mm-hmm. the stage. Everything breaks. And then after that, Gerald comes back from the back of the house to impart news that he's figured he's figured some things out, he thinks. And you have to climb from backstage onto the tipped-up house. And usually it's a sort of like a 18-inch step up, a foot, 12-inch step up, mm-hmm. and across a little bit of void. But the, one time the house had tipped further than usual. It was all that I could do with zero gymnastic skills <laughs> to cross this sort of great divide <laughs> like Harrison Ford in... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just got onto it with that. And I th- I, that was another moment where I thought, well, this is either going to work or they're going to have to bring the curtain in because I'm going to be in a heap on the floor. <laughs> the danger. The, there's a dangerous life being well, an yes. actor. There's, there's, yes, there's danger and there's danger. I think there's, we embrace risk to a certain extent, but... Well, um, just out of curiosity, any any of you, I assume Shakespeare is your favorite actor, besides Sha- your favorite playwright, but besides Shakespeare, um, any other any other ones? I've that- done. I've been very fortunate to do five things with Howard Brenton, who is apart from being a singularly wonderful human being, is a singularly wonderful writer. Uh, talking about paring things down and and taking things away Howard is the master of that oh that's interesting so I did, and the universe has just seen to it that we've I've done five things with him and so he's a, he's a great joy to play can you give me the a name of some of the plays I did well the one with Jeremy Irons was never so good at the National that was the first time I went with him I did the rag his adaptation of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists mm-hmm. at Chichester and Liverpool Everyman and I did two shows that he'd done at the Globe with John Dove, Anne Boleyn and In Extremis, the story of Abelard and Eloise. And then I did a, qu- a quadrilogy? Mm, yeah. yeah, sure, quadrilogy let's go with that. Sure, what? Of Magna Carta plays at Salisbury Playhouse. And he wrote one about a Russian gangster who steals 
the Magna Carta from Salisbury Cathedral and, and holds it to ransom for an English passport. <laughs> and I played the gangster in that. You played the Russian gangster? Which is a, a complete joy. Can you do a Russian accent? I th- I, I, let me get, wrap the brain around it. There was okay. a wonderful line. This is a classic Howard Brenton line. When, he, when he's talking to the policewoman about why he's not going to give back the Magna Carta. And he has this line, something about this, this is, this is shitey, shitey, shitey nonsense. <laughs> but at, at ten times that volume. Well, on that note, I think we're going to have to write, wrap this up. Because it's such a wonderful way to leave this uh, this fantastic podcast. With shitey, shitey, shitey shitey nonsense. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, the the sheer entertainment value of a of that. Well, I think we have to call it quits here. Thank you very much. To it's our, a pleasure. Thank you. Our guest Tim Francis, who will be in at the West End uh, doing witness for the prosecution um, until the end of October. Till the middle of November. To the middle of November. Seats in all parts do come, but don't tell the don't tell the ending. No, no, well, it's Agatha Christie's. That would be cruel, just cruel. rather fabulous. It is, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. Uh, And thank you again. Claret and Conversation was brought to you by our sponsor, Clapham Publishing Services. It was executive produced, sound recorded, and edited by Teddy Ethoft. If you liked Claret and Conversation, please subscribe, share, and comment. Mm